0: How's everybody on this Labor Day holiday? Seriously, uh, we don't have to be jealous of our friends who were able to travel this weekend. There's no place you would rather be right now than here. Is it sunny out there yet? It was. It looked like it was headed that way. Yeah, that's right. Some of us get here before eleven o'clock. You know what I'm saying? Uh, just checking. Some of us get here. You know, whatever. Uh, I'm glad that you're here. Let me reiterate, and I'll do it again at the end of the service, but we give, we we want to always say that we want to be a church that, that really, um focuses in on what we think are the most significant things that that people in our congregation can be a part of, and our small group ministry really is that. So on Sundays right now, as our church has been growing, we average a little over 300 people every Sunday. But if you want to be in smaller segments, um, the best way to do that is to join a group, typically 10 to 15, maybe 20 people in those small groups. And uh, it's pretty incredible. Uh, Who knows where this is going to land? Before this session, the most uh, people we ever had sign up for small groups in the first week was about 70. Uh, Coming into this morning, we're about 160. And so a lot of people are joining groups. We try to make as many offerings as we could uh, so that whether you work downtown, you can get to the Wednesday group. Uh, Kill two birds with one stone. Do the worship service at 11. And there's two groups after the 11 o'clock service. So we just want to say make it available. There are some niche things like Tim said. There's a finance group. There's a kind of a new to faith or exploring faith group that I'll be leading on Tuesday nights. There's a mom's group, a couple of women's, a men's group. So lots of um, offerings because we just want to say we want to help you get into community because that's where the life of this church gets fleshed out. We can have one- or two-minute conversations on Sundays, certainly uh, can, can hear teaching and all that, but we believe that's really where things get fleshed out. So just want to encourage you. I'm a part of one. Obviously, I lead one, um, but it's huge for me not just to be the leader in this church but to, to find my own community here. And so it's been, it's been a great blessing for me, and I, I think the same will be true for you. As our church continues to grow, uh, the, the idea is our church gets bigger. We want to realize we need to get smaller in some ways, and so um, these groups are really the avenue for us for us getting that out. 21 or 22 groups being offered, so there hopefully is one that fits your schedule. If not, we'll try to invent one for you, uh, as long as it's not 5 a.m. on a Sunday or Saturday, all right? So um, I had had breakfast with a friend, not lunch. I had breakfast with a friend this past Thursday, a friend that I have breakfast with fairly often. We uh, have a place we normally go to, nothing wrong with that place, but this week we chose a new place, and I've got to be honest, the three words that really brought me into this place are right here on their promo piece, Weekday breakfast. Okay, really, those two words didn't do anything for me, okay? It's the next word that did something for your pastor. Weekday breakfast. Come on, what's one of the best words in the English language? Buffet. Before you quit, like some of you are already hating on me, oh, over food consumption. Listen, buffet is not my favorite word just because of the food consumption issue. Anyway, this is Rosa Mexicano. It's a Mexican spot. They're doing weekday breakfast now, okay? Eight to ten. So uh, the if you want breakfast before that, figure out something else. Uh, so we had this breakfast on Thursday. It was amazing, but I want to let you know why we love the concept of buffet. And it's not just because we get to eat as much as we want, though that's a side benefit, right? Here's why you and I, no matter if you're a big eater, not a big eater at all, you don't like meat, whatever, wherever you're at in the whole food thing. let me let you know why we love the concept of a, of a buffet, especially for those of us that aren't good with commitment, okay? You can get whatever you want. And you don't have to eat it. Right. So let's say you get something you don't like. Guess what? Just just get a clean plate. It's, It's a beautiful thing. When you normally go to a restaurant, at least I hope you're not two entree people. Don't raise your hands. If you are a two entree kind of person, you get 12 or 15 options. But how many are you going to realistically choose? One. And you better hope it's good at a buffet. Guess what? If one's not good, guess what I can do? There's choices. And the cool thing, no matter what choice I make, I'm not restricted from making any choices in the future with whatever else is up there. Right? Just because I'm choosing the eggs this round doesn't mean the sausage is going to get left out forever. I mean, I'm going to help them out. I'm going I'm to do whatever I can to take as much as I want. And there's no restriction. And the reason a buffet is great for those of you with commitment issues is because you don't just have to choose one. Right? As much as you want. As much as you want. But there are some things in life, true, that you have to choose either or. Right. Or maybe there's 10 options, but you only get one. Lots of times there are two options and you only get one. Let me give you a few thoughts. If you currently have a full time job, nine to five every day of the week and you're offered another full time job, nine to five every day of the week. You cannot have both jobs. Right. Some of you are like, no, Ben, I figured it out. No, You can't realistically have both jobs. You may enjoy living in New York City and San Francisco, but realistically, you can't live in two places at one time. You can do seasonal, whatever. You can do one week here, one week there. But you can't consistently live in both cities at the same time. And I'm assuming when it comes to marriage, you know that spouses work this way too, right? You can have, guys, you can have her or her, but you can't have her and her. Everybody, same page with a pastor? No matter, no matter where you come from on this. Um, my wife told me just a second of thanks for doing, being a one-spouse kind of guy, and I am. Um, ladies, with your, with men in your life, you might like him and him, but at some point, you've got to choose. All right, you can only keep them a secret from each other for so long. You gotta, you gotta choose. And and here's the deal: so many things in life are like that. They're not, they're not all buffet kind of choices. It's not it, it's so many things like you go to a grocery store, tons of things you can buy and you can get this thing get the other thing. But many times in life, you either get this or this. And as we conclude or come near to concluding our next to last week in the kingdom series, Jesus is going to talk to the disciples and thereby talk to us this morning about what kind of life we get. And here's what we need to know. This is where most of us will have a struggle and we need to work through it. Jesus is going to say you can have life A or life B, but you can't have life A and B. And many of us are at a place where we want Jesus as long as we get to keep everything else. And here's where the crux is in the kingdom. This is where the crux of the matter is right here. We we can't have this kind of life, as you'll see in a second, and this other kind of life. We have to save one but lose the other, or save this one but lose this one. And so what we've been doing in this series called the kingdom, we've been using the gospel of Mark to really look at what is this kingdom about and who is Jesus as the King in this kingdom, and then of course what does it mean for our lives. If you have a Bible, I would love for you to open up to Mark chapter eight. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and our volunteers are already on it and they will hand you one. Just keep those hands up high. I'll even let you know that we're on page 548. So some Bibles coming right over here. 548 for those of you that have one of the Bibles or passing out. For the rest of us, Mark is the second book in the New Testament. Um, we're in chapter eight. We'll start in verse 31. We'll read to the end of the chapter, but I really want you to be thinking about this. And let me just say, um, before we get any further, You're not going to be the only person in the room that when I read this in a second, you're not going to be the only one that goes, whoa, this is a tough thing. Okay, so let me just say for me what I'm about to say, this is tough, but I think it's worth it. Okay, this is tough. I don't expect you or I to be perfect in this area when we leave, but I do want to clearly say this is what Jesus is offering us. It's either this or it's this, but it's not this and this, and this will be for many of us what will cause perhaps Uh, uh, Some of us to walk away from faith, but others, I hope you will embrace it and see what Jesus offers us is actually better than what we have to give up. And until you and I see that, we'll never give up anything to follow Jesus. That's my theory on it. If you would stand with me, Mark chapter 8. We'll start in verse 31. We'll read through the end of the chapter. And just so you know, before you see the characters in this story, uh, by way of reminder, Peter was one of the really inside three disciples for Jesus, one of the inner three. And um, Mark, when he writes this letter, what's known as the Gospel of Mark, he gets all of his information from Peter. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was telling someone else the story about my life, I usually don't include the weak spots. Do you? But you've got to commend Peter. No no matter how crazy you think Peter was, Peter actually let um, Mark know about the low spots in his life. And this probably is one. Okay, so Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And Jesus is just going to lay out what for them um, that they need to know, what we need to know. He's going to tell them what the apex of this kingdom is. And then they have to decide, will they live the life he offers them or will they live this other thing? And so just for the sake of pronouns in verse 31, uh, Jesus is going to begin to teach his disciples, just, just so we're aware. It says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. That's a bad idea, right? I mean, really, you're gonna okay, Peter, whatever. Uh, but turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said to Peter and the rest of them, I think, "Get behind me, Satan." I assume you don't use this as a term of endearment for your friends. Anybody like, uh, what's up, Satan? Anybody? All right. Don't. Um, For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man and calling the crowd to him. That's Jesus calling the whole crowd, not just the disciples with his disciples. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever would save his life. Will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You may be seated. Told you this on the front end. This is tough. This is a difficult thing. But I want us to hear clearly what Jesus is seeking to communicate with Peter, with the rest of the disciples, with that crowd, and I think with us this morning. Right off the bat, it says that Jesus told them these initial things plainly. The reason it says that is there are times where Jesus would speak in parables. There are times where Jesus would use figurative language about his own death and about his resurrection. And the disciples wouldn't always understand it. But on this particular day, Jesus speaks plainly. And when you see the word must right there, right off the bat, when Jesus says, I must do this— He's saying he must do all of those things. So it's only associated in the, in the English language, just saying that I must suffer. But he's saying I must do all of these things. So Jesus is saying to his disciples, here's the apex of this kingdom. This is where the climax happens. This is the big idea. This is what God sent me for. This is the, the primary thing that I'm doing here. He says, I must suffer many things. I must be rejected by the religious leaders. I must be killed. And then on three days later, I'll rise again. Jesus isn't saying it's going to happen by accident. Jesus isn't saying if there are evil people in this world, they'll probably do something bad to me. There are evil people that are going to crucify Jesus, but this was God the Father's plan since the beginning. In Isaiah chapter 53, it says that it was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus. And so Jesus is letting it be known plainly to the disciples. This is going down. This is going to happen. And Peter had other ideas about the kingdom. Right. Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him and essentially just is like, Jesus, I don't know what you think this kingdom is about, but I've got another plan. And then it says that Jesus, in turn, rebukes Peter. But while Peter does it to Jesus one on one, thank you, Peter. That's one good thing. You did it you know, privately. That's what you want your boss to do to you when you get reprimanded. Right. Jesus doesn't do it one on one with Peter. In fact, the text, if, it's, if you read it, it says that he looks at the disciples Even though he's addressing Peter, I think that's what the text says. I think he's addressing all of the disciples. And he says this real odd thing to one of his good friends, or maybe all of his good friends. He says, What? Get behind me, Satan. What? These are your boys, Jesus. These are your guys. These are the people you're entrusting the future of this whole movement to. What do you mean, Jesus? Get behind me, Satan. I think Jesus recalls in this moment with his disciples, another moment before his public ministry began, another moment where he really was with Satan and Satan tempted him. I don't know if you're familiar, but there's a uh, there are 40 days that Jesus was tempted by Satan. And when it says, and I'll show you in a second where it says this, that Jesus was tempted, that means he was tempted. He was tempted to lay aside his kingdom for something else. And I think what Jesus is recalling and the reason he's referring to his disciples as Satan is that they're trying to do to him the same thing Satan tried to do, which is this. Set aside the plan of God the Father for this other thing. Okay? Now, I want to show you why I think this out of Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 7. We'll have it on the screen. And I want you to think about what the disciples are encountering Jesus doing here. Think about the conversation that's going to unfold and remember that Jesus is likely remembering this scene. Luke chapter four, verses five through seven. It says, and the devil took Jesus up. The devil showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to Jesus, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. Verse seven, here's what Satan says to Jesus. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Here's why I think the, the parallel is occurring. Originally, Satan says to Jesus, and it's interesting, think about the title of our series. He says, all of these kingdoms can be yours if you just give up trying to usher in this, this new thing that you're here to do. And here the disciples, namely Peter leading the charge, say to Jesus, Jesus, let's don't go down this path. Let's not. No, you don't have to die. You don't have to be rejected. You're the king. Let's make this kingdom about something else. And the temptation that Jesus experienced with Satan and even again here with his disciples is the same temptation he knows you and I face. In fact, he's going to spend the rest of his conversation here in this moment talking about the temptations you and I face. And he's going to say something big that he knew for himself. And he's trying to declare to the disciples and to us, you either can have this life or the other. If he had taken Satan's bait, he would have laid down his own kingdom, but he would have gotten all these other kingdoms. And he's saying to the disciples, if you don't want to go down this path, then you're going to miss out on what I was sent here to do. And he's saying to us, one life or the other. Here's what the disciples learned that day using the language that we've been speaking here at Epic. You will discover this. You will either have a life that orients around you. You're central, you're ultimate, you're the main idea. Essentially, you're the idol, you're the God. Or you'll have a life that orients around Jesus, but not both. And can we just be honest this morning? We usually want it both ways. We want to follow Jesus with, with also being able to do our own thing as we will, as we wish. And so what he says to them is you can either orient your life around you, or you can orient your life around Jesus. And what I think Jesus does, starting in, in really right off the bat in, in, in verse 32, I think it is, he starts telling them the difference between what life A looks like and what life B looks like. A life oriented around them, uh, their self-centeredness, or a life oriented around Jesus. I want, to, I want you to see the differences in the text. And, and I want you to be thinking about which life do you have, which life will you keep, and which life will you lose. Because what Jesus is really clear for all of us, no matter where we are on the faith spectrum, we keep one of these lives if we're considering Christianity and we lose one. We lose one, we keep one for every one of us in the room, not about perfection, but it's about making this conscious decision that we're going to live this way or we're going to live this way. And it can't be both. Here's what Peter, here's what Jesus says. uh, The first difference at the end of verse 33. If you orient life around yourself, your mind is set on the things of man. But if you orient your life around Jesus, your mind is set on the things of God. And what Jesus says to Peter is, Peter, you're thinking about things of yourself. You're orienting your life around you. You're only thinking about the things of man. What he's saying to Peter and what he's there, therefore through this text saying to us is, if we put ourselves in the middle, then the only thing we will think about is what makes us happy, what makes us successful, what brings our identity, what gives us status. For instance, when it comes to relationships, if you're in the middle, guess what? You only have friendships, relationships, even marriage, and even children so that these people can make you happy. But if Jesus is in the center you're thinking about the things of God, you're thinking about, okay, what kind of husband does God want me to be? What kind of father? What kind of selfless neighbor? What kind of person who can serve those that work? With me, and, and so you have this big dichotomy right here. There's one. If life orients around you, you're only thinking about what can I get? You're in the center. And even God, along with everyone else, serves to serve you. They exist to serve you. But if we begin to think about the things of God, the question becomes this. What does God want? What pleases God? What does God intend for me? Why did God put me in this neighborhood? Why did God put me on this hall in my company? Why did God put me in this church? It no longer becomes just so I can get whatever I want out of it. I realize that my mind needs to be on the things of God. First of all, the things of God are better than the things of man. One leads to pride. The other leads to humility. And so we just need to be honest and ask ourselves, is my mind, is the, are the affections in my heart, are they centered around me? Just to be honest with that inventory this morning. Are my affections, are they centered on me? Or are they really centered on God? Am I thinking about things that I wish or just whatever God wants? What am I most interested in? At the end of the day, when push comes to shove, what is my heart bent towards? And again, this isn't about a perfection thing. We're all in process here. But I'm trying to ask us as a church this morning, let's let's move towards this. Let's move towards having our mind renewed and asking, God, what is it you want? What do you want for our church? Not what do I want as the pastor, as self-centeredness. God, what do you want? God, what do you want in my family? God, what do you want at the office? When we begin to transition and ask that question, I think our conclusions begin to look different as well. You go throughout the text, you see some more differences. Um, If life orients around you, then all you care about is what you want. But if it orients around Jesus, he says what? Deny yourself. Deny yourself. Deny yourself. And we're awesome at this, aren't we? I mean, you're as good as me at denying yourself, right? Your self-control is off the charts. Your discipline, your selflessness. Am I the only one? Like, I'm just rocking it every day. So good. Um, this is so hard. This is so hard. The reason he's saying this to Peter, and he has to even really, you imagine Jesus is probably preaching this to himself. Right? When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's headed to the cross. He says to God, God, if there's another way to get the same results for your kingdom, could I go a different way than the suffering that's coming? But he had to deny himself, right? How did he finish that prayer? Not my will? And this is the hardest prayer you and I will ever pray if we really mean it. When's the last time you denied yourself? Something that would have been awesome for you, but not for everyone else and not for God. And remember this: This isn't denying ourselves to kind of live this um, terrible existence. It's denying ourselves so that we might fully follow Jesus, right? It doesn't say deny yourself, period, does it? What does Jesus say in thirty-four? I think it is deny yourself, take up your, and then what? Follow me. We're not just denying ourselves to kind of live this. Um, like, oh, I don't want nothing. I don't want anything in the world. Um, no, we we give things up to follow. We're not giving things up just for the sake of giving things up. We're not denying our pleasures and our desires just to deny ourselves and to kind of have this pitiful existence. We're denying it because we believe Jesus is better. Or do we? Anytime you see the word cross, when you think about it in history, anytime you read it in the scriptures, it always means one thing. It's the opposite of life. Always. It always means death. How does it fit with denying ourselves? Because until you and I die to what the Bible refers to as our flesh, as Jesus makes us new in the spirit, until we die to our flesh, we're only going to orient our lives around ourselves. When's the last time you gave something up for the sake of something better that God was doing? This is what the difference is. You can only have one life or the other. What we want to do, if we're honest this morning, we want to follow Jesus, but forget the deny yourself cross part. Don't don't we? That's a pretty good deal. Kind of buffet-like. Jesus, I want to follow you. I love the benefits that come with that, um, but I sort of want my will, too. Can we kind of find a compromise, Jesus? We would love that, but he doesn't offer us that. When you orient life around yourself, all of us do this. We avoid pain and suffering no matter what it will cost us or no matter what it would produce. But Jesus does take up a cross. And then you get to this part that's so huge for us to hear in this city, in this day and time, with the drivenness that every one of us have, with our quest for ambition, our quest to acquire things. And I wonder what it would look like if you and I and we as a church began to live countercultural in this city to how the rest of our city acts. Here's the deal what he says when he gets to verse 30, is it 36? When he gets to verse 36, I want you to know that, that this is where most of your neighbors are living right now. When you get to verse 36, I want you to know that most of the people in your industry, this is where they're living. Most of the people that are on, uh, in your company, this is where they're living in verse 36. So Jesus just lays it out. He's like, you guys care mostly about yourself. You're orienting your life around yourself. He says, so let's get to the end. Let's say that all the things you're chasing, you get. He says, what good is it if you get everything? Now, some of us, let's just pause. We can think of some good, right? Right, Your team wins. And they haven't won in forever. You get the promotion you're not qualified for. Out of the 60 open house applicants, they choose you. What if you get everything? And yet in the process, detach yourself from your soul. In the end, Jesus says, what did you get? Now, you guys know my heart on this. I want you to get the best jobs in this city for lots of reasons. I want you to work your tails off. But I don't want those things to be your God. You know that. Next week, we'll talk about what kind of ambition we should have in this kingdom. We should have ambition. So all you lazy people, just get ready, okay? I'm going to try to spin how, how it needs to look, but we should have ambition in this kingdom. We should work harder than any other people in this kingdom, right? I want you to. I want you to make money. I want you to gain things if your heart and motives are pure and you're headed in the right direction. But at the end of the day, Tim Keller in his commentary on this passage, he says this. He says, you will never gain enough things in this world to finally be sure of who you are. Some of you are like, man, what am I living for then? What are you living for? Let me say it again. He, he says, you'll never get enough. You, you'll, you'll never gain enough notoriety, status, money, stuff. You'll never get enough to finally be sure of who you are. And so he says, don't build your identity on what you can gain when you can build your identity on based on what Jesus has given you. Right, we're we're trying to achieve identity, and and Jesus wants us to receive it. Somehow, we think what we could produce for ourselves is better than what He's handing us. He's not wanting us to strive; He's wanting us to receive. He's not wanting us to jump over hoops; He's wanting us just to receive. What if you gain the whole world? What if you get everything? And this is a little bit depressing when we've when we first. Let me let me tell you where I'm at just a little bit personally. I'm not going to tell too much, okay? I promise. Just, I'll keep it generic. Um, I want to live the life that Jesus, I think, is offering all of us in this passage. You know what my very first struggle with it is, though? When I quit trying to game the whole world, I don't necessarily initially know what to do with my desires. Does that make sense? When I'm not looking just for the next vacation or to buy a house or to send the kids to college, all those things will be great. Hopefully we'll do it. We're working on fastballs right now, so um, scholarships there, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm also teaching them advanced math on Monday, So we're, we're, we're trying to get there, all right? We're just we're trying to get there. But to be honest, it's a struggle for me, and there's a little bit of depression that comes with it. For me, just mentally, when I start thinking, okay, when I don't want all these things that the world offers, what do I do with it? And then I realize that those things have a place. They just weren't meant to be ultimate. And so then I begin to think about, well, God, I want to be at peace no matter what you give me. No matter what you give me, God, I want to be faithful with whatever you give me. And what I want to do is not let those things ever become ultimate. One of the best things God can do for every one of us in this room is to keep certain things from us. Because if you and I were to get them, guess what would happen? One of the best, kindest things God can do for you and I is to withhold some things from us. But I want to be, and I want you to be, and I want us to be people who go, what Jesus is offering us is better. So it's not that I'm going to try to never get a house or not pay for my kids' college. I'm just not going to be bent on that as ultimate. That's just not what's going to make me happy at the end of the day. Because one day those things are all gone, and then all I've got is whatever I've got. That's what Jesus is trying to say. And here's what happens, I think. Jesus says to us, right, if, if you want to save your life, you need to lose it. If you lose your life, you'll actually save it. And here's what I think most of us are afraid of. We think that if Jesus is calling us to lose our lives, then he's calling us to lose the epitome of who we are. And that if Jesus calls us to lose our lives, he's calling us to lose our core identity, our truest selves. I think if Jesus is calling us to lose our lives, he's calling us to lose all of our freedom and to be less us than we've ever been before. And that's a scary thing. But what if Jesus is calling us not to lose the life that's most truly us? What if this other life he's asking us to save is most truly us as he intended, as he created, as he purposed? Would you really be missing out on something then? I think that's what he's after. I want to show you what C.S. Lewis says to end his amazing classic book, Mere Christianity. If you want a great read, this is a great read. I've got a copy you can borrow uh, if you like things really, really underlined a lot. But this is, this is, is, these are the words he ends the whole book with. So I'm going to show them to you just based on what we're talking about today. Lewis says this, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes with every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Hear this. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you, this is huge, that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. Here's why we hold off on giving this life to Jesus. We're deathly afraid of giving up what we think is our best. We're deathly afraid of giving up who we think is our true self. And Jesus, all the while, is going, no, I created you. I, I, I know the real you. And when you come to me, that's what you get. The truest sense of yourself, and most of us are terrified. I talk to people a lot who are contemplating and considering moving forward, placing their faith in Jesus, and here's what, here's what they say. I just don't know about the things I'll have to give up. And let me be honest. No no, uh, no bait and switch here. There are things, if we're going to follow Jesus, we'll all have to lay down. But when you understand what Jesus offers you, it'll all be worth it. So here's what's the motive? What does Jesus say the reason is we should lose our life? He gives us two reasons. He gives us two reasons right there in verse 35. He says, whoever loses his life, here's the two, two things we should be willing to lose our lives for. For his sake. Why? Because he's king. If he's really everything to us, if he's really ultimate, if he's really worthy of our worship, then we should be willing to lose everything for his sake. And then he says, for the sake of the gospel. Do you know that if you just go try to gain the whole world like everyone else who lives in our city primarily, do you know you won't stand out at all? You know this, right? You and I will not begin to stand out. The gospel will not begin to really go forward in our community until we begin to demonstrate the power that Jesus has in our lives. When we begin to forsake what seems obvious to the world, when we begin not to have our hearts set, receive great things, yes, but my heart is somewhere else. I'm not treasuring those things. I'm not looking to those things to do for me what they cannot do for me. I'm looking to Jesus to do for me what he alone can do for me. And when the gospel begins to be demonstrated, remember, the gospel is just this uh, eternal plan from the beginning of time where God has planned to send Jesus into our world, not to condemn the world, but to save us from our sins by his atoning sacrifice. That's why he told the disciples, it's not that this is sort of going to happen by accident. I've got to be killed. Otherwise, there's no life in the future. I've got to be killed. This is where the apex of the kingdom is. I've got to die. And then what Jesus calls us to do is the exact same thing. It probably won't happen on a physical cross for any of us, but he's called us to the exact same thing. And you and I have got to determine which life will we keep, which life will we lose. It's a huge question. Think about it. Don't make an immediate decision unless you've processed some of this already. You've got to decide, I'm going to keep one, I'm going to lose one. Which am I going to keep and which am I going to to lose. I want to give you my favorite parable. At least I think it's my favorite parable. It's a one verse parable Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. I want you to see it. And I want to ask you, is Jesus this for you? Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Now, some of you have done this at clothing stores, ladies in particular. You found that one sweater, your size, 50% off, and you hid it from everyone else, right? Anybody guilty? Thank you, Micah. We got one honest person in the room. That's what it says about this guy. He, he found treasure hidden in a field. He covers it up. He doesn't want anybody else to get it because he's got to go make amends. Then he's coming back to get it. And so he, he, he does something in his joy, not in his duty, not being handcuffed to obey God, not just to make God happy. In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and does what? Buys that filled wine because he found something that was better to keep and have, even if it meant giving up everything else. And until Jesus is that for you, until Jesus is that for me, until Jesus is that for us, we really don't have a clue who Jesus is. Self-included. But if he is this, remind me what wouldn't be worth laying down for him? Is he a treasure to you? Or is he a compartment of life like all the other treasures in your life? One or the other? One or the other? Save it, lose it. Lose it, save it. My hope for you. My hope for us. And we're just on this journey. We are not coming to an arrival point today. We're not at a destination. We're just trying to move in the right direction. My hope for us is that we would enjoy what God gives us in this world but that we would treasure him why because he's worth it because he's worth it because he's simply worth it would you pray with me some of you have never placed your faith in Jesus and I want to make that opportunity available we're seeing people do this it really uh, at least for us at Epic uh, on a, in a record on a record rate right now and with what you've heard today you wonder Gosh, I'm getting all of these things that the world has to offer, and I'm still empty. It's because you'll never get enough to be sure of who you are. But Jesus is trying to give us a sure identity this morning. Which life are you keeping? Which life are you losing? Whatever your decision is, I hope it's because what you're choosing to keep is worth It is worth it. It is the kind of treasure that can stand the test of time. It's the kind of treasure that doesn't have to be renewed every 30 days. It's the kind of treasure that lasts. And that in your joy, because of Jesus being that treasure, in your joy, you would be willing to forsake whatever he asks you to forsake. This is for us. This is for all of us. I want to pray for you. Then we'll stand. Brad will lead us in response. Just to remember that Jesus isn't just worth following because he's king. He's worth following because of the kind of king that he is. The kind of king who wouldn't use his authority to crush us, but would use his authority to go hang on a cross so that we might have life that's really life. It's being offered to you today. You have come face to face with it. What's the response? God, I thank you that you have offered life in your son. And God, when it seems like I'm having to walk away from what is my truest self, you actually have something more true to who you made me to be than what I think I have. God, this is so difficult, but I pray that Jesus would constantly be who we see as worth it, who we see as a treasure, so that in our joy, we would lose anything else gladly. We'd be willing to deny ourselves. God, give us minds and hearts that are on the things of God and not on the things of ourselves. Give us a life that orients around Jesus. For your sake, Lord, and for the sake of the gospel, God, may people see, not be drawn to us and us get attention, but God, may they see that you have power, to overcome all the things we're enslaved to. God, you have power to give us desires that are of you and not just of this world. And God, for the men and women in this room who are on their way to gaining the whole world in their eyes and yet are beginning to forfeit their soul, God, I pray that you would speak to their hearts in this moment before it's too late. God, you have rescued us. I pray you'll continue to do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and respond.